Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I want to just start this morning by asking you the question, what, what is it like to be a faithful grandpa? What's a, what does a faithful grandmother look like? A faithful wife, a faithful husband? What's it mean to be a faithful grandson or granddaughter, brother, sister, co-worker, boss? Our, our world is in need of people who are marked by faithfulness. Last week we learned the story of Hannah who gave birth to a true gift from God, a little boy named Samuel. Hannah had pleaded with God for a child. She had promised that if God would give her a a child, she would give that child back. And God gave her Samuel. Sure enough, when he was old enough to be weaned, she took him to the priest in Shiloh at the tabernacle there and left him behind to be raised by the priest when he was about three or four years of age. Can you imagine? Not being able to have children, and then all of a sudden, you, you get what you promised God you would give back, and he actually comes through. And you take that little baby, and he's three years old, and you leave him. Samuel would grow up dedicated to the Lord. He would be mentored in the ways of the priesthood by Eli, Today's setting in the life of Samuel really revolves around a place called the tabernacle. Was a, a, you know, some people hear that word and they think, I think they think elaborate, you know, cathedral type, um, you know, dripping with gems and gold and, and things like that. That would come later, but what you have here is basically a tent. It's just a, it's just a you know, a, a place that, that, more of a tent structure and for reference i did a sermon on the 17th of january of this year called the the tabernacle prayer and if you wanted to know more about the tabernacle specifically the the furniture and and uh, that was i I actually thought that was a a pretty cool sermon work you through something called the tabernacle prayer it's a completely different new way to pray and um, if you wanted to know more about the tabernacle i would reference you to that particular message there was a place in the very back of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. This is where they basically, in their mind, that's where God lived. And really, that is where God was for them. Uh, This place, this Holy of Holies had the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And this was the atmosphere where our story takes place today. And if you were a worshiper in that day, and all of a sudden you look over and you see a little four-year-old running around in a priest's outfit. You know, he's got the ephod on and you wonder to yourself, what's up with the kid? And someone says, well, you know, that's Samuel. His mama couldn't have children. She, she uh, struggled with infertility for years. And one day she comes to this very tabernacle, which represents where God is, and she has pretty much a meltdown. And she prayed a prayer and promised God that if he would give her a son, she would give him back. And he did and she did. And once he was weaned and able to come live here, she brought him here and left him, and he's been used in God's service since that time. You, you know, if you're going to leave your three-year-old somewhere, you would think that the tabernacle would be a good environment to do that, right? I mean, it's going to be a holy place. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of worship. It's where religious ceremony takes place. That's, you know, got to be a, a, a good place to leave a four-year-old, right? Except it wasn't. That's the problem. At the time Samuel is dropped off at the tabernacle, the high priest there is a guy named Eli. Eli has two sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And these two sons were in charge of running the tabernacle, and they were bad news. Scripture 
summarizes in one verse, Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. <laughs> I don't, that might be the only other place in Scripture you see that word. Scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. That's what you call putting the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can understand, right? These guys, they're bad news. You say, Brett, lots of people have no regard for the Lord. I mean, that's not really that big a deal, is it? I mean, lots of people have no regard for the Lord. Well, that's true, but these two are leading the spiritual life of the country. They run the tabernacle. They're living as if there is no God. They, they, they're involved in religious ceremony and religious hypocrisy. The importance of this study today as we look at Samuel is not just that he was faithful, it's where he is faithful. Samuel's faithfulness is like a tree that will grow up out of the uh, asphalt of corruption. You know, it's, you see sometimes a, a, a weed that kind of forces its way through asphalt. We kind of struggle with that out here with the asphalt cracking and, you know, you see these things kind of peek up through the ground. That's kind of what Samuel was having to do. It isn't just that he will be faithful with his life, but that he will be faithful here. You ever had an environment in your life that you just found it extremely difficult to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus in that particular environment? You, you, you might say, yeah, Brett, that's called my job. That's, <laughs> yeah, I have that. You know, it can be hard to follow Jesus at work, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of work you do, law firm, uh, you know, factory work, police force, uh, teacher, professor, could be any number of things. Uh, and you say, Brett, you don't understand it's, it's, you don't understand how hard it is for me to be a follower of Jesus in my environment. No, I, I kind of do understand, probably more than you think I do. Just before I came to serve at this church, God led me through a pretty dark time and took me to a pretty dark place, and I believe that he was preparing me to do what I'm doing now. Um, I think he wanted me to experience what you experience, see what you see, go through what you go through. I know what it is to wake up and think to myself, how am I going to go into that place and live for Jesus today? It's so dark. It, it, it's, it's so, the darkness is so encroaching. It just feels like it's everywhere. You just feel enveloped by it. And he showed me, I believe, what many of you are up against. So I get it on some level. It's been some time but I can't imagine it has changed all that much. For some of you, you would say, well, Brad, it's not work that's the problem. My problem is my family. I'm the only Jesus follower in my family. They all think I'm nuts. They don't want to hear me talk. They, they, you know, if I try to add to a conversation, they just look at me as the crazy one. And, and you know, they just liken what my faith to a, a child that believes in some you know, yearly fantasy of some creature that comes along and does good things for them. I'm trying to be sensitive to not spoil anything. Kids in college would look at me and say, Brett, you don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through. And you're right. It's been a while since I've been in college, 35-plus years since I was at a secular university. And I did, believe it or not, did study at a, well, I went to a secular university. I don't know how much you could say I actually studied. That's, that's, that's where things get a little fuzzy. But I know what it is to go somewhere like that and have your faith challenged and and be the only one who believes the way you believe. We've had some professors uh, come through the doors at Cross Lane. We've had them in attendance here today. We have them in this service here. And following 
you know, Jesus, they would say, Brett, you don't understand how hard it is for me to do that with all my colleagues and kind of what I'm up against, intelligentsia. It can be difficult sometimes. So for many of us, the challenge isn't just that we would be faithful, but it's that we would be faithful in challenging environments, places that are um, not conducive, you would say, Brett, not just not conducive, hostile, hostile to faith. Sometimes the environment we're in just does not promote our growth, and faithfulness can be hard. Today we're going to look at, at, at uh, four separate scenes, and each one of these, uh, it's going to be kind of a compare, trast, co- compare and contrast kind of thing between what Hophni and Phinehas were doing and what Samuel was doing. So right out of the gate, we are told that Eli's sons were scoundrels, and, and they had no regard for the Lord. And someone might wonder, well, Brett, really, I mean, honestly, how much trouble can you get into uh, at the tabernacle? I mean, really, how bad can it be? The answer is you can get into a lot of trouble. It can be really bad, as you're about to see. Imagine a scene at the tabernacle where a worshiper has come to the altar, has brought a lamb for him to sacrifice there with him. He's come from a long distance. And typically when we, you know, if you ever see a, if you're reading a book or you're in your Bible and your Bible has pictures and if it ever says something about a sacrifice, they usually don't show the actual sacrifice. They usually show the, the 10 minutes before the sacrifice where there's a cute little lamb and he's there by the, you know, the person that's there and you don't, you don't get the full effect of what's about to happen. Because what's about to happen is they're going to slit its throat, skin it, throw it up on the fire. And so let's think about that worshiper for a moment. You would travel to the town called Shiloh. You might live 10 or 20 miles away. Some people could have lived as far as 50, 60, 70, 80 miles away. And when you detected that something was wrong in you, or if you were going to make the trip for one of the annual festivals, but if, you, you know, if, you, if you'd done something that you felt like you'd wronged God and you wanted to make it right, or you are going to go to the festival, you'd go and you would select an animal that, that uh, you, know, you were going to take and offer on the altar. Maybe you've deceived someone, maybe you've lied, and it's come back and it's, it's been embarrassing, and you want to make that right. You know, it could be any number of things. You've done something that maybe has really hurt somebody, but before the time of Jesus in Israel, what you would do is you would go to your flock, and you would look through your flock, and you would, you would select an animal to take to be offered on the altar, and you wouldn't pick one. You didn't want to pick the one with the wonky ear, you know, just kind of flopping the wrong way. Every time it ran, you're like, yeah, that's floppy. We call him floppy. You you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't pick the one that had gotten caught by a lion but had somehow been saved and now it walks with a limp. It just kind of had something wrong with it. You wouldn't pick that one. You wouldn't pick the one that was old and blind, half blind, and, you know, not going to be with it much longer. That's not the one you would pick. It was supposed to be one that was fit. The The Bible uses the phrase without blemish. You would make your selection, you would travel to the tabernacle, and again, this was miles away, could be as far as 60, 70, 80 miles away, and as you come to the tabernacle, you offer your sacrifice, and the idea was that not only um, had you hurt other people by your actions, but that you had hurt God with your actions. There was a, there was a distance now between you and God, there was a wedge, and, and so the sacrifice was meant to lift that wedge, and so there could be healing between you and God and whomever else. You had broken something between you and God, and you were coming to the tabernacle to make things right. 
And the way an animal was sacrificed on the altar, they, they didn't just throw the meat up there and, and then, you know, light the fire and burn it to a crisp. I think that's the way most of us think that a sacrifice happened. That's really not how it went down. You would put it on, you would leave it until the fat was burned off. And, and that fatty part was the part that was offered to God. That was the gift to God, was the fatty part of the meat. But the, the remainder of the animal would be taken off the altar, and it would be cut, and it would go in two different directions. The priests would get the, the chest and the right shoulder. That was what they ate. That's how they survived. They, ate, they survived on the sacrifices of the people. And then the other part would be given to you, and you would take that and you would prepare that as a meal. And the idea was that you, there was a, a sweet satisfaction in knowing that this animal that had been sacrificed, that was now feeding you, had been used and offered and sacrificed to the Lord to heal the thing between you and God, that things had been made right between you and God. And so that meal was supposed to be special, and you know, just this sweet feeling would come over you like, okay, now everything's right between me and God. It was supposed to be a healing time. And now enter Eli's son, scene 1, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 15. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some of the meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So you're the worshiper and your heart is heavy and you're making a sacrifice for your wrongdoing and you're interrupted by a guy who's there with a knife who's saying, give us the steaks. We're going to take them now. They're going to take the fatty part. They're going to take the part that was meant to be offered to God. They, they have no regard for God. They're not thinking about God at all. Verse 16, if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, which means I'll, I'll give you my part even, but don't take the Lord's part. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So these guys were thugs. Bullies. This was the one place that someone came to make things right, and then they got there and they found out that things were so wrong. If you had ripped somebody off and you came to the altar to make that right and you brought your sacrifice in, how do you feel when you walk up to the altar and then you get ripped off? There were also women who worked as servants around the tabernacle. Some of these women would catch the eye of Hophni and Phinehas and you're like, oh, Brett, don't go there. Don't tell me that that was going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. The female workers kind of became a, a personal harem for Hophni and Phinehas. Question, how do you think God felt about that? His house of peace and reconciliation spiraling into a mess. Verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel is four, five, Six years old, he's just a little guy, he's growing up in this environment. Question, does this seem like an easy place to thrive? The camera shifts from Hophni and Phinehas, and we're going to see is that Samuel does not blend in, Samuel stands out. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy, a boy wearing a linen ephod. 
here's this little guy running around the tabernacle with this priest's outfit on. He's got the robe, he's got this vest on that had some emblems on it. They called it an ephod. It set him apart as a priest. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. This was the first verse that you read. The, this, is, this comes right after that, that verse that we just read in, in verse 17 where it said, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. What you see is a contrast. Samuel doesn't blend in. Samuel stands out. And then halfway through the second chapter, we come to a very tender moment. Verse 19, each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Every year mom would go up with the husband to offer the sacrifice. She looked forward to it because she was going to get to see her precious little boy. And she had worked and she had made a robe for him. And then she would return home after a brief few moments, maybe days, with her son where she got to give him a hug and talk to him and see how tall he's getting. And just, can you imagine how proud you would be to go to the tabernacle and see your son in that environment and just think to yourself, oh, man. And how bad it would hurt to leave him there and have to go back home. And she would come home and she would sit down at her loom ready to make another robe for the next time she would go the following year to the tabernacle to see her son. And even as I say that, a question begins to form. You start thinking to yourself, well, how would she know how big to make it? That's part of the problem. Now you wonder if she had a little boy in her village that was about the same size and she just kind of used him as a guide and, you know, hey Ephraim, come over here. Let me slide this on you and see if this fits. I'm going to take this to Samuel and and hopefully you guys are about the same, you know, you wonder how that all went. But she, every year she would go, and, he, and Samuel's just getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and she never really knew whether or not she was going to show up with her little robe in hand, whether it was going to fit or not. And you come to the point in this story where Hannah shows up one year, and the priest Eli says, hey, may God give you more children because of the one that you've left here at the tabernacle to serve the Lord. And we're told that Hannah has two more daughters and then three more sons. So there for a while, it's very likely that Hannah is showing up, and every time she shows up, she's like, hey Samuel, meet your little sister. Hey Samuel, meet your little brother. And every time she shows up, she's got another one in tow, and Samuel's like, wow, you guys are getting busy. And the years are passing, I'm sure it's four, five, or six, Samuel did not think you guys are getting busy. I, <laughs> let me backtrack off that a little bit, unless Samuel was really worldly. <clears throat> and here's the question that comes up. You think about this story long enough. Did mom know what was going on in the tabernacle? Did mom and dad have any idea what's happening in the tabernacle? And the answer is, everybody knew what was going on in the tabernacle. Scene two, we focus on Hophni and Phinehas. Dad tries to get involved. Eli, the priest, tries to correct his sons. Verse 22, now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about the wicked deeds of yours. These wicked deeds of yours. Eli's trying to correct these two, and he's giving them a verbal reprimand, but it's too late. It says all the people knew about it. Everybody's heard about it. 
This has been going on for years, even though he's spoken to him about it, he's chewed him out. Have you ever seen this? You ever seen kids just being terrible and the parents letting them do it? And you're just like, my goodness, how do, are those parents blind or deaf or both? I mean, what, is, what are they thinking? What, step in. And they, they actually act like it's cute. Was it Sam's the other day? And this kid was walking in front of his mother, and he was just a holy terror. And she was, you know, he's tearing things. He's, he's into everything. Honey, don't touch that. Put that back. No, come back to me. I looked at Didi, I'm like, I would be going crazy right now. Eli doesn't weed these guys out. He doesn't say, hey, I want your robe, I want all of your utensils, enough of this, you have no regard for God, and you have no business in these positions, you are finished. He rebukes his sons, but he does not remove them. This will come back to haunt him. And the camera focuses now, and it shifts, and we put the focus on Samuel, and the question is, how could anyone remain faithful in an environment like this? Next verse, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. He's growing physically, yes, but he's also growing closer to the Lord, and he's growing closer to the people. There's a connection there. Somehow, for those worshipers who are coming from other towns, more than likely, they dreaded going to the tabernacle because they all knew what was going on, and it just was, you just kind of had this ick feeling that came over you as you went in there, but they saw Samuel, and they knew that Samuel was pure, Samuel was good, Samuel was close to the Lord, Samuel was different than this Hophni and Phinehas. Somehow there was a light coming off of Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas have created this messed up, jacked up system, but somehow Samuel has distinguished himself. And he is growing in stature and favor with the Lord and with the people. And in scene two, Samuel doesn't just blend in, Samuel stands out. I just assume that you encounter some difficult moments and environments day to day. I just assume that you go through certain things, certain environments, and that, that they can be challenging for you. I would just ask you this question this morning. Do you blend in or do you stand out? Some of you might say, Brett, I'm not contrasted. I'm completely compromised. Is it possible that today the Lord would be pleased to see a shift in your heart and in your behavior in some way and for you to say, Lord, I don't even know what this is going to take, but instead of me blending in, I want to stand out. God, I want to be one of the faithful ones. What would it look like for you to stand out instead of blending in? Scene three, we're told that a man of God comes and speaks to Eli. We're not told his name. We don't know how old he is. It just says that this man approaches Eli. A man of God gets a prophecy from God, and the message is very simple. You're in trouble. You've honored your sons more than you have honored God. Eli, both of your sons are going to die on the same day. And the priestly responsibilities are going to be ripped from your family and they're going to be given to another family. Now, even as I say that, it's possible that somebody within the sound of my voice hears that and says, oh, great, that's just exactly how God works. He doesn't like things and he starts killing people. 
This is, see, Brett, this is why I don't like going to church. This is why I don't like reading the Bible. You know, that's the environment I was raised in, this God of judgment. Where's the God of love? Where's the God of grace? And, and we open stories like this, and the ax is about to fall, and some of us love this because we love the justice part of it, but there's some of, of us, we look at that and we go, it just messes with us. We're like, that's a part of, that's, a, that's why I don't like the Bible. One of the things I would caution you at it about at this point is to be very cautious about separating love from discipline. On the one side, there is a loving, gracious person, but on the other side, there is a disciplinarian. If, you, if we're doing a dictionary thing right now, we would put the picture of a mother out to the side who, who loves, but because of that love, she disciplines. Uh, I had a father who loved me and had no qualms letting his hand meet my backside to prove it. And when that was going on, I got to say, it didn't, I didn't feel much loved in those moments. I understand it now as a father, and I've had to do that with my own kids, but when you're little, you, you know, you kind of, you're like, this does, I'm doing this because I love you. Well, really? Because it doesn't feel like you love me. When I was a youth pastor, we took some kids, we were at a conference somewhere, I think it was on a Bible college campus, and you know, there's other youth groups around, and we're in this room, we're in this building, and, and there's some other kids in the youth group, another group of youth group kids, separate from my own. This is when I was a youth pastor. And those kids and their youth pastor were playing a game, they had a ball, and they were doing this game, it was pretty pretty rowdy and some things were getting messed up like they were messing with furniture and uh, I think something got broken and my kids were not participating my kids were watching this and you know they're kind of looking at me like Brett do something but I'm like their youth pastor is right there and he's letting this go on and I'm just kind of I can't believe that he's letting it go on later on we're in the van and the kids are still thinking about it they're still talking about it like I can't believe that they did that that's just so wrong they shouldn't have done that and then and, um, you know, I, I thought, well, here's a teaching moment. I'm just going to ask. And I said, guys, had that been you, I said, so you wanted that youth pastor to step in and, and, and correct those kids. And they're like, yeah. I said, so you would want me to discipline you if you did something like that. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, how come? And they said, well, Brett, when you do that, it shows us that you love us. I was like, yeah. I was so proud of them. I shouldn't have been proud of them. I had very little to take, take credit for. Their parents had done a great job is really what that means. But they understood that, that their love and discipline are connected. I was pretty hard on my own kids, my biological kids. I loved them, but I did not want them to grow up to be typical preacher's kids. Have you ever been around a preacher's kid that just went off the deep end? Um, some of you grew up preacher's kids, and you might say, well, that was me when I was 15. I, I don't know. But, um, but I wanted to raise my kids to be able to integrate into the job market and be good citizens and you know, good for society and all that. And I was bound to determine I wasn't going to raise hellions. I just was, 
does determine. Now, here's the thing. You can do it all. You can do everything right, and your kids can still turn out to be hellions, okay? You can, you, it's, it's, sometimes it's just not your fault, and, and some of you might have kids that you're struggling with, and you feel so guilty, and I just want you to hear that, you know? If you did everything you could, and you tried your best, sometimes they just, know, it takes a while, and sometimes they don't get it, and that doesn't mean you're a bad person or even a bad parent. But I loved them, and I wanted them to succeed, and I wanted them to, to know what acceptable behavior was. Be very cautious about separating love and discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. And he loves his people. And in this situation, and the tabernacle's a mess. It had gone on for far too long. It's far too public. And God said, look, time's up. You've had warning after warning. It's over. Some very bad things are about to happen. And you know, the, the way I would put that is it's, it's kind of like your, your cell phone goes off. And you look down and it's God and he's saying, hey, you need to really cut that out. You need to change that. That's, that's something that's not right. And it's, it's as if sometimes we see, oh, this is from God. Well, you know what? Here, God, here's a message for you. Leave me alone. Mind your own business. I don't want to hear that. The height of spiritual arrogance is to believe that God is obligated to bless us no matter how we behave. And to think that we can defy him week after week and ignore him year after year and somehow he is obligated to continue to be there for us. Listen, you run from him far enough and long enough and there comes a day that the phone st either stops ringing. I don't really think it's that the phone stops ringing. I don't think God gives up on us, but we give up on God. I think what happens is we just don't hear it ring anymore. We've just ignored it for so long that we just don't even hear it anymore. Samuel's growing up. He's no longer four. He's entering full childhood. How in the world can that kid remain faithful in that environment? 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. We know that. Why does he keep telling us that? He tells us throughout this story, Samuel keeps getting basically a sentence, and it's kind of a quiet sentence. Hophni and Phinehas stealing steaks from the altar, that's kind of a loud sentence. Hophni and Phinehas sleeping with the women that are attending in the tabernacle, that's kind of a loud sentence. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Sometimes faithfulness is quiet. Sometimes those people who show up and just have integrity and speak the truth and have a good value system, sometimes they do that stuff and it's really quiet. And they do it over and over. Faithfulness is often quiet. It isn't usually very attention-grabbing. We have people in this church who show up faithfully to do jobs. We don't pay them. We don't give them anything. They show up on time. They stay through the, some of them stay for two services and work through two services. We don't put them on a pedestal and tell them how great they are. They're just faithful servants. They show up, they're quiet, they do their job well, and then they go home. And, and quite honestly, we could not do what we do around here if those people didn't do that. We wouldn't be able to have cross lane. But we have it because there are faithful servants. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, the boy Samuel, you know, we read in this story, we come across these quiet verses, we almost miss them. It's just easy to overlook. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. 
The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. What we're being told in these quiet sentences is that Samuel doesn't blend in. Samuel stands out. Scene four. It happens at night. Eli is asleep. Samuel is asleep. They think that Samuel's cot was actually in the tent, in the tabernacle. Not sure about that, but that's what they think. Verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And then again, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes into Eli's room and he says, you called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Right? Like we've done with our kids. Like, would you get into bed? And so Samuel goes back and gets in his bed, and he hears the voice again, Samuel. And again, Samuel goes into Eli's room. Eli, you called me. And Eli is just getting ready to launch into a tirade on Samuel and let him have it. And then he goes, oh, no. Verse 8, then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And Samuel gets this wonderful, cheerful message. You tell your boss that everything I prophesied against his family is going to happen. Eli and his sons are going to be swept away. Verse 13, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. He knew this stuff was going on. He refused to step in and take action. Question, how do you think Samuel slept for the rest of the evening? Knowing that he's just a kid, 8 to 10 years old, maybe 11, who knows. And the next morning, Samuel's going to get up and he's going to walk out of his room and he's going to encounter Eli and Eli's going to point a bony finger and he's going to say, hey, come here, boy. Come here. What did he tell you last night? Tell me everything he said and don't leave anything out. And little Samuel looks at this man who has become like a father to him and he says, God says your family is going down and here's how it's going to happen. And Eli's response is, well, he's the Lord. Let him do what he wants to do. The question is, why did Samuel even get this message? I mean, the man of God has already appeared to Eli and told Eli all this stuff. Why would Samuel need to be told all of this? A couple of things. Before this time, if you had pointed to the kid and said, who's that? They would have said, well, that's Samuel. No, no, well, he's got on a priest's outfit. What's all that about? Well, he's, he, you know, functionally, he's a priest in training. He's learning how to be a priest. But now something has shifted. Now if you were to ask, what is he? You would hear, oh, he's not just a priest in training. He is a prophet. He's a child prophet. God speaks through Samuel to the people. But secondly, Samuel has seen all of this behavior. He's been in this environment, and God is saying, no, really, their day is going to come, and you don't, Samuel, you don't want to be any part of that. You need to be apart from that. Samuel needed to hear his voice because if 
if you are in it year after year after year, if you have constant exposure, you can, become to, you can come to the place where you begin to think that, that those behaviors have no consequences. And God is saying, oh, yes, they do. Those, con- those behaviors do have consequences. Verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. When Samuel speaks, it is not just ceremonial dribbles. Samuel will speak with a force and a weight and a, cha- a clarity and an accuracy, and soon everyone from the northern part of the country all the way to the southern part of the country will be saying, there is a prophet in Israel, and his name is Samuel. Samuel does not blend into his environment. Samuel stands out. It is what you have to do if you live for the Lord and you are in an environment that is highly compromised. And many of you live and work in just such environments. It can be troubling to think that Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel grew up in the same town, in the same tabernacle, praying the same prayers, singing the same songs, and yet they are radically different in their responses of their heart. It can almost be kind of spooky to think about that they could all come up in the same environment and be so different. Let's talk for a second. And your cell phone just keeps going off. It's, it's text after text after text. How long has it been ringing for you? How long has God been trying to get your attention? How many messages has God sent that have gone either unanswered or where God says, hey man, I need your attention and I need it now, and we type back, leave me alone. I want to hear that. There's an important admonition in Scripture that says, today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. It's possible for God to say, hey, Look, this is going to be a mess, and I need you off the path. I need you away from it. I need you, I need you to not be a part of it. And for us to say, yeah, thanks, I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. Thanks. I don't need that. I would just encourage you to respond to God before the phone stops ringing. And really, it's not that the phone is going to stop ringing. It's that we're going to stop hearing it. You can ignore it for so long that after a while you just don't even hear it. It doesn't even register. I grew up five miles, less than five miles from the greater Cincinnati airport. It was in, ironically, our airport is in northern Kentucky. And when I first moved to Florence, I could, it was, you know, it was a kid's dream. Every five seconds it seemed like a, a DC-10 was flying over our house. You would have sworn that they were using our house as a marker. That, you know, planes coming in really low, I mean really low, and it was awesome, but you know what, I lived there for years and years and years, and there comes a point where you don't even hear them anymore, they fly over, they're loud, you, you just don't even pay attention, you don't even realize they're there, and it's easy for us to get that way with God, where he's trying to get our attention, and we just don't hear it anymore, and you may have said no for so long, that no for you has become a permanent answer. One of the opening statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5. He says this to his followers, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. People can see it and they get hope 
they can see it and they can realize there's safety there, there's hope there, there are people there, there's a society there, I can eat there, I can be safe there, I need to get to that place. And it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I know the environment is dark, I want you to stand out against the night. Shine out in the night like a town on a hill. Faithfulness matters, prayers matter, your heart matters, faithfulness matters. And our world needs your faithfulness now more than it has ever needed it before. There are people out there that need to see you faithfully live out your life. I know your environments are hard, but our world needs faithful servants. Where is God calling you to change? Where is God calling you and saying, you know what, you could be more faithful right there. We need to change that. Let's fix that. Let's take that out. Let's not do that. Let's, or let's do this. Look, environment's hard. Times are hard. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty. We went to a leadership conference this week. I learned a new word, puck. Puck, P-U-C. Pain, uncertainty, chaos right puck that's what we're dealing with we got to be faithful god has not forsaken us god is not going to forsake us god is with us even when it gets dark and it feels like we're all alone god has not left us he will walk with us through the puck make sure you enunciate but god loves you he will not leave you where you are he is going to be with you every step of the way but he's going to call you to some things and when he does, a good, faithful servant says, Speak to me, Lord, for I am listening. Let me pray over you this morning. Father, I know that these people have come here from all different kinds of environments. Some of them are, are uh, very difficult. Some of them are dark, bleak. Some of them, it's, it's really hard to live faithfully as a Christian and, and to put up with the abuse or the criticism or the, the, the making fun. And Father, if we're totally honest, sometimes we just get apathetic and lazy. Whatever the reason, I pray, Lord, that you would use this morning to kind of get to us. Do not let us be people who have ignored your text messages for so long that we no longer hear the phone going off. Don't let us be those people. And what you're calling some of these people to in this room right now takes guts and courage. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them an abundance of both as you change us transform us and teach us what it looks like to be faithful in a faithless world only you can do that in us father and i pray that you would help us i know you will we thank you for jesus lord we worship you this morning saved called out redeemed holy sanctified we worship you we pray it in jesus name amen